Hi everybody, Zach here for another episode of our flagship show, The Spidey Dude Experience. This particular episode is an interview with John Mark DiMatteis. Now, James DiMatteis is the legendary writer of such stuff like Craven's Last Hunt, and he's the writer for the Shadow of the Green Goblin miniseries that is going to be published in April. You got till the end of the month to pre-order this particular book, and we really want to encourage people to do that. We also want to encourage people to check out our other fine shows on spidey-dude.com, as well as our sister show here on the channel, Make Mine Mayday. Um, everything's available at spidey-dude.com. Our audio listeners are getting this at the same time as our video listeners, because we're doing a simultaneous launch. Uh, so be sure to hit that like button if you're watching us live on YouTube. It helps us really big time with the algorithm. Additionally, if you've got topics you want us to cover on a live show or recorded medium, make sure to leave us that comment down below or shoot me an email at network at gmail.com. Finally, we want to make sure that people can be alerted. So join our community to be alerted for all new updates by hitting that subscribe button and clicking on the notification bell. But to be clear, your viewership is more than enough for us. But if you want to hang out with us, join our Discord, uh, where we have all sorts of fun stuff. The links to this are all down in the description below. As always, we're going to be making references to visual aids and or live comments. Uh, there won't be live comments on this particular episode because we are going to be in the comment section with you guys as this is live streamed. All this was pre-recorded. Uh, so pay that no mind if you see the visual if we're talking about visual aids, but leave us that five-star review regardless. And uh, for audio listeners, thank you for listening. If you're a video listener, obviously, thank you for watching. So without further ado, let's get started with this episode of the Spidey Dude Experience. Everyone, welcome to the newest episode of the Spidey Dude Experience. I'm Zach Joyner, host of the program. And as always, we got to thank our patrons over at patreon.com slash network. You see our VIPs up on the screen here, and uh, we are always appreciative of them. Scott, Sebastian, and Venkman, thank you guys. We've also got our sensational tier patrons. I will name them uh, at the end of the episode because we got a special guest. But first up, we've got to introduce our good friend, Javi. Hello, Javi. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on this very special episode. I'm excited. Yes. <laughs> Next up, we've got Neil. He is the host of the Books of X podcast. That uh, We're going to have to cover a certain Magneto miniseries very soon, aren't we, Neil? Yes, we are. And I love how Javi uh, phrases like it's a after-school PSA, a very special episode. <laughs> it is a very special episode. It and is. finally, our to round out the panel, we've got Adam, our otter apologist himself. Welcome, Adam. Hi, uh, happy to be here. All right, and of course, our guest today needs little introduction to Spider-Man fans. He wrote classics like Craven's Last Hunt, The Child Within, The Death of Harry Osborn, Citizen Osborn, miniseries. Ben Riley's Spider-Man miniseries that we discussed in our previous visit with him, and he also did Spider-Man The Lost Hunt in between. He's created his own Dematteis verse, and now he's back with a new miniseries that starts this April called Shadow of the Green Goblin. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the show, J.M. Dematteis. Hello, sir. How are you? I am fine. Thank you. Thank you. Citizen Osborne. I don't think I had anything to do with that one. Sorry. Well, I thought that was a Spectacular 250. Citizen, what? Citizen Osborne. Remind me. I don't. Maybe I just don't remember that story. Hang on, I'm that doing some. I'm doing some which, quick research. Okay, look it up. Look it up. Look it up. Uh, yeah. Okay. It so was, is that when Norman? Is that when Norman first comes back? Yes. Uh, yes. Let's see. Okay. So. Oh, that, it, okay, that sounds vaguely familiar. So Zach, you were corrected. It's spec two fifty uh, with J.M. DeMatteis and Luke Ross on art. 
Now, did Tom DeFalco plot that story, if you have it in front of you? Or did I write uh, that myself? Let me take a look. There was one story that Tom plotted, I remember. That oh, I maybe it may have been Tom. I didn't remember Tom plotting it. but I could be wrong. I could be oh, wrong. there you go. So welcome back to the show. Um, <laughs> See, we're starting off really screwing <laughs> everything up right from this. Yeah, this is no, it's it's great though. We're derailing for fun. These stories, you know, these stories, some of wife. these stories were a long time ago. It's like hard to yeah. remember. You know, I don't remember every single story that I've ever written, and someone points mm -hmm. it out. Or sometimes, you know, I've gotten into interviews where people ask me about a specific story. And I give them this very involved answer. And then after the fact, I realized I was talking about a completely different story at the time, <laughs> which bodes very well for this interview. So let's keep going. <laughs> well, because there, there is uh, this is this miniseries. I mean, I remember when I saw the press release for it, I was very, very intrigued because uh, it took me back to a time that I remember it when I was younger. And they did something called the y'all did something called the flashback month. Right. Where you stopped publishing all the stories and you just did all these retro throwback style stories. I hate to ask this question now based on what you just said, but do you re recall like what that was all about? How that came about with Marvel? The flashback month was a, was a across the line. So somebody way above my pay grade decided we were going to do that. And they basically said, that's what we're doing. I, what I, what I do remember that's that I did a story about young Peter and young Flash Thompson and how their lives parallel. There was no Spider-Man. There was no, as I recall, there was no superhero action at all. It was just a character study of those two and how different their lives were, how what they presented to the world and what really went on behind the scenes in their homes and in their lives. And we saw the seeds of what made Flash the... Oh, there it is. Very good. Yeah, I, I grabbed the issue. <laughs> Why'd you get rid of Adam? Don't throw him under the cover. Well, I wanted, I wanted to, I wanted to have. J yeah, get rid of Neil instead. Okay. <laughs> I already did it. There You're you welcome. go. Yeah. Anyway, I did that story. <laughs> yeah, I love that story. That's one of my. Yeah, I, I like that too. I really enjoy the one. Anything that's gonna dive deeper into the characters and show us things about the characters that we didn't know before, that's. Ultimately, that's always my goal. Mm -hmm. I may not always succeed, but that's what I'm attempting. Yeah, because I loved how it tied into what you were working on as a subplot with with him and his alcohol abuse. Right, and stuff. right, yeah. exactly. And I felt like that yours was probably the one that kind of fit the rest of the tone of the what was going on in the series. Because like the other ones were all fun. I mean, there was pre-superhero stuff. So I, I really, like I say, I really enjoyed it. And and so the inspiration for this miniseries comes from this issue that I believe Howard well, Mackey. Yes and no, that the, the inspiration for the miniseries doesn't come from that. We, okay. uh, I, I was just talking to my editor, uh, Dana Chasm, wonderful, wonderful mm -hmm. guy, such a pleasure to work with, um, about what were we going to do next? Because we've done this will be now the third one we've done after Ben Riley, then The Lost Hunt, and now this. And we started talking about setting something in the very early days of, of Peter's career as Spider-Man. I've done a few short stories, shorter stories that took place in that period. And I find it really a fascinating time because here's this basically 15-year-old kid, has these powers. He's now officially decided he's going to be a superhero, whatever the hell that is. Uh, but he's still just a 15-year-old kid. You know, just because he gets superpowers doesn't mean you know how to fight, for instance. You know, if someone gave me superpowers okay. now and I had to go out and fight Dr. Doom, he beat the hell out of me because I wouldn't know what I was doing no matter how strong I was. You know, and it's it's kind of, it's a strange, weird, traumatic. One of the things I dealt with in The Lost Hunt 
was that it was actually all kind of traumatic. It was only, you know, when he, 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 he lost his powers and had a time to reassess when he looked back and realized, you know, the, the levels of anxiety he was living with all those years. Now imagine being 15 and going out there and fighting Sandman and the Vulture and Dr. Octopus and all these people. So it's that period. I also did a story maybe 10 or 12 years ago. I think it was an amazing Spider-Man family called The Punch. He, he doesn't know what his power is. So he goes to stop right, this yeah. little burglary at this store, punches the guy once, mm -hmm. sends the guy to the hospital with multiple broken bones, and it scares the hell out of him. You know, And this story actually directly relates to that. I think... I think hopefully when we collect this, the punch will be reprinted along with the main miniseries. So that was the that was the germ of it. And we got Danny and I got to talking about the Osborne family. And obviously I love that great dysfunctional dynamic in the Osborne family and Harry and all of that. And so we started talking about that. And I had never read the proto-goblin story. I was completely unaware of it. And then Danny sent it over to me and I read it and we started, oh, this is a great hook to bring Norman in, to bring Harry in and have a window into what's going on in that world. So that's so the story idea didn't start with the proto goblin. It started with that period of time and what it meant to be Peter Parker and Spy. Plus, we're all I don't want to give too much away because it hasn't even come out yet. We're also right. dealing with the fact that Uncle Ben's death. I mean, we're this is the story takes place within the first month of him being Spider-Man. So Uncle Ben's death is still a very, very fresh wound. And how do these two people, how do Peter and May deal with this, with their own grief, and how do they deal with each other in their mutual grief? And that's a big thing that runs through this story as well. I, I was uh, going to ask. Last time. Go ahead. Go ahead, Pommy. Uh, uh, last time you were here, sir, you mentioned that you preferred Harry as the goblin. So how was it for you going back to the early days and imagining what drove Norman and how that shaped Harry? And can we expect your trademark subconscious narration as well in this new story? <laughs> well, I'll, 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 I'll get to both of those. Yeah, it's it's always great to go back to revisit these characters, especially in this period, because what do we know about Harry in this period? We don't really know. So it's another opportunity to look at that family and that family dynamic and also without giving too much away, you know, here's Harry who also, you know, grew up without a mother and what was Norman's relationship with the mother really like. And we get into a lot of that whole family dynamic while, you know, while Norman uh, has to pay the price for what he had done to the proto goblin, maybe a year before I, I get the timeline a little mixed up. I think it was maybe a year before when yeah. that happened. Um, so there's so much fertile ground there for, mm -hmm. um, for dissection of the psyche of all these characters. And those are the stories I love most. As for the, the narration, what I and, and what I just, you know, it's so hard because I don't want to give away too much. You know? Right, but I know. I, We're trying to get people to pre-order this though. That's, right, that's right, hard. right. I, but I don't want to tell them the whole damn story. And then in the second issue, you know. <laughs> uh, so one of the things I'm doing with the narration is something I, I really like to do. It's, it's sort of the Dickens, David Copperfield way of telling the story. It's being narrated by Peter. Years okay. later, okay. years later, looking back at these events. So he's been able to talking to people to piece together things that he didn't know at the time. And when you have a character looking back on his own life from years later, there's a distance there. There is perhaps a sense of humor there on things that seemed very dramatic at the time. You know, it's it's if I'm telling you a story about something that happened to me when I was 18, very different than me telling you a story about what happened to me when I was 18, let alone 15. So I love that narrative device, and I'm having a lot of fun with older Peter. And in my mind, 
He's even older than he is in the in the current books. This is an you know this is a significant leap for Peter looking back. Um, so that narrative device for me, one of the most important things in any story is the narrative point of view. Mm-hmm. Who's telling the story? Is it an omniscient narrator? Is it the main character talking in first person as the events happen? Is it someone looking back years later? Is it a completely different character with a completely jaundiced view of the events that we're seeing so that the narrative voice and the story are fighting with each other? You're seeing one thing and the narrator is telling you something else. So then I've had stories that I've like had in my head for years and I sit down to write and I realize I can't write them because I haven't figured out the narrative point of view yet. But for this, that narrative point of view of Peter looking back uh, really locked it for me. You mentioned your editor yes. on this book. This is now your, like you mentioned, your third project with him. Do you develop a groove with an editor? And yes. Has that, has that changed over the years with, with editors, or has it just always been the same and it's just there's nothing that, like, it's the same structure all the time? You know, the, the, the relationship with an editor is like the relationship with the artist, like or like any relationship in life. It comes down to chemistry. You may have a brilliant editor and a brilliant writer, I'm not talking about me personally, uh, but they just might not click creatively. They might not, you know, they, they might not see story uh, or that character the same way. So when you click with an editor creatively and then you also manage to connect with them personally, that's a wonderful thing. I've been very lucky with Spider-Man editors named Danny. I Danny Fingeroth for so many years and now Danny Chasm. Danny is, Chasm is just a great guy and also, you know, in the modern age, a lot of what goes on in terms of working with your editor is all through email. I've worked with people mm-hmm. for like months, if not years, and you never talk to them. It's all emails, you know, and Danny picked up the phone right away. And we get on the phone periodically. We have a nice long conversation. And that allows you to make a real connection. You know, back in the, pre, uh, the pre-digital age, when, you know, working on those stories in the 80s and the 90s, you know, Danny Fingeroth could pick up the phone and call me four times in the same day with questions. You really mm-hmm. build a relationship that way. You know, Danny, you know, went on, Danny's one of my dearest friends in the business. Uh, and part of that is because we really got to know each other then. Uh, and a lot of that gets lost with time. So that the fact that this Danny, Danny too, <laughs> picks up the phone and we, you know, we've really connected and we, we see things very similarly creatively. He has a lot of trust and faith in me. So he's not sitting over my shoulder trying to, you know, edit every little thing that slides by. He knows that I know what I'm doing. And so when <laughs> he does speak up and make a suggestion, I pay attention. You know, when you have certain editors who are so invested in being the editor that they're looking over your shoulder the whole time, it inhibits you. You know what I mean? And then it all becomes white noise. So like every comment is just in a row of them just trying to be an editor and shape your story in some way. Whereas an editor that gives you the room to, to, that respects you and gives you the room to breathe and grow, then when they say, hey, you know, that part's not working, you pay attention. You know, if someone's, you know, if you walk into, if you're sitting and having breakfast and someone's sitting there with you and they're commenting on everything you do and the way you lift your fork and the way you sip your drink and the way you poured your cereal into your bowl, you know, um, you know it becomes white noise after a certain point. If someone sits down across from you and says, you know, and you've had breakfast with them 10 times and they say, by the way, you know, you're drooling today. Could you wipe your mouth? <laughs> you're going to pay attention as opposed to the person who's been, you know, this, it's the worst step to come up with the worst metaphor in the history of metaphors. But I think you know what I mean. Yes, absolutely. Short version is Danny's a great editor. It's been a joy to work with him. Well, I, again, it's been 
it's been a joy to read the work you guys have produced together. I can certainly say that. Uh, Javi, again, uh, what's your next question? Yeah, I'm kind of dovetailing off what you've already hinted at a little bit. Like when you're when you're younger as a kid, like problems feel so colossal. Like things that happen as a teen, like you look back and you're like, well, that wasn't really that big of a deal. Um, was it a challenge for you to go back to this younger Peter Parker who just lost Uncle Ben and didn't quite have the more adult responsibilities of today or because of the scale of the challenges staying constant, um, did it, did it feel like it was in proportion for you or was it harder to write this younger Peter Parker? Not harder at all. You know, two things. One is, you know, when you live with a character, as long as I've lived with Peter and it's like, we're Mm -hmm. talking, I started on Marvel team up in 1981. That was the first Spider-Man book I ever wrote. So I know Peter Parker longer than I know a lot of my friends. You know, it's an amazing yeah. thing. And then you know you write these characters, and when you when you really really connect with them, the way I've connected with characters like Peter and Ben, they're not characters anymore. They're friends. And as I've often said, in some ways you know them better than your friends because you know every little corner of their psyches. I don't know every corner of my best friend's psyche. You know, Peter's I know. So this just this is the Peter that I know, but it allows me to move into a little different corner of his psyche because he's young and certain things aren't unformed, but it's the Peter that I know. So I understand mm-hmm. him. And the flip, and then the other thing that works for me is for, for better or worse, I've always remained in touch with my teenage self. You know, I remember very well what it felt like to be that kid. I've never let go of that part of myself, maybe to my detriment in some ways, you know? but <laughs> So to step into the shoes of 15-year-old Peter is an easy thing for me to do. Did that uh, necessitate any, like, research on your part, like going back and rereading, like, the Lee Ditko era or the Untold Tales of Spider-Man to make sure you weren't repeating something they'd done before or trying well, to, to find the margins? To go, to go back to, you know, the, 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 the value of a good editor, it's like Danny, Danny is so well-read. And he'll mm-hmm. say, oh, you know, there was this thing that happened in the third issue of Untold Tales of Spider-Man, uh, and maybe we could dovetail off it, or maybe we should avoid that because it's, you know. So I don't, I don't, you know, it used to be when I first started in the business, when, if I got a new gig, uh, it was an excuse to go out and buy 500 back issues, you know. The comic book, <laughs> the comic book collector in me was like, oh, well, I remember. For I was work. Gonna, yeah, right. Tax exactly. write-off. Tax write-off. <laughs> was about and say. now it's like, you know, the editor sends me what I need to read and and uh, um, research so yeah so it's easy although it is funny i was just talking about this recently you know that this work like any job can become work after a while and and things can happen and wear you down and the the way i i sort of um get myself back is i go find my 10 year old self in my mind and i say you know the other day what i had to do for work was read comics all day or, or last week I was working on an animation project and what I had to do for a couple of days was watch cartoons. That was my research. And then my little 10 year old self, his eyes light up and he faints dead away. And I find my joy again because I realize what I'm doing. Holy, ma- you know, it's like, this yeah. is what I do. And it's an amazing thing when your childhood passion becomes your adult livelihood. And, and I can never take that for granted because it's a huge thing. Um, so we had done an interview last month with Greg Wiseman, who's writing a new ongoing. And when he was brought into that, the artist was already pre-selected. Mm-hmm. Um, was that the case here with the editor with Michael? Uh, is it Straw Maria? 
Is that how we pronounce right. his name? I, I, I think so. I've never had to say Santa, it out loud. Santa Maria? <laughs> I think it might be <laughs> Santa Maria. Right, oh, that's amazing. right. Actually, it, it, he, it's written that way, but it is it's Santa Maria. Yeah, okay. you're absolutely correct. I don't, I don't know why it's written the other way. But, I think um, it's uh, it might be like you know how Saint is abbreviated as ST, ah, okay. possibly. Ah, okay. Okay. It might be, it might be uh, stylized as a pen name. Yeah, I, I in the with these three miniseries in a row, uh, I have had no say in who the artist is. Basically, Marvel has their list of people, and I'm sure they have the rates that they pay people and the budget for this particular project, and it goes around this way, and they figure it out. But the great thing is, you know, I've been doing this a long time. I have a lot of artists that I love and would love to continue to work with. But it's also really important to encounter and discover new artists. You know, when I worked on the Ben Riley series, I had never heard of David Baldion, had no idea who he was, fell in love with his work, uh, so much so that on our Demultiverse uh, Kickstarter, he's doing one of the books, Any Man. And he's just so good. But I, I didn't know who he was. So the fact that, that they brought him to my attention. It's, a, it's always a great thing to, 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 you don't want to just keep working with the people that you know, as much as you may love working with them. You always want to work with new people too, and have that, have that nice new chemical reaction. And I actually had a question about the Demetrius verse, because, you know, uh, for people who aren't aware, it was a Kickstarter, I believe that was right. Like we're calling it, we're calling it the Demultiverse. Yeah. Um, and you know, David Baldwin, you said you'd worked with him on Ben Riley. Now he was doing any men. Right. Um, can you share any insight into how your writing style, if it at all changes, how you uh, change it up when you're working with someone who has a different art style? Because, you know, uh, I'm not familiar with the creative teams outside of Baldian, but the other artists have fundamentally different art styles. Right. Well, in terms of the Demultiverse thing, I'll just do the short version. What we did was Demultiverse Phase 2 is coming just a few months from now down the line. So, we're, But what we did was we launched four, and then we threw in a surprise fifth book. So five new series five number one books, five different genres, five different styles, five different artists. Uh, and my friend David Baldy, not to be confused with David Baldy on, which is very confusing to me, <laughs> um, who, who was my partner in this Kickstarter, started this imprint, Spellbound Comics, to, uh, to embrace this line of books. And so to answer your question, the, the, the artists for that were chosen to fit the series themselves, which, you know, the, so I had a supernatural Western, Tom Mandrake, of course, you know, Tom Mandrake is great at the supernatural. He's done Westerns. I've wanted to work with him for years. Perfect. I have an all ages fantasy, Sean McManus, who I worked with, you know, for so many years, one of my favorite artists. He is so perfect for that kind of fantasy. Matthew Dow Smith on Godsend, same thing, um, you know, and on and on. Uh, so the artists were really chosen to fit the series as opposed to me tilting the series to fit the artist. Now, what does happen as you get to know an artist is I tend not to tailor my stories to the artist. I mean, you know, the artist can see you know, The story comes first. For me, it's about the characters and the story and a professional artist is going to come along and they're going to meet the needs of that story. Now, the flip side is once you begin to work with somebody and you know their work, as I'm writing, what am I seeing in, in my head? I'm seeing their style. Working with you know, Mike Zek or Sal Buscema or whoever, or now we you know pick David Baldion. Now that I know his work, I'm writing the second issue of Any Man, and I'm seeing it drawn by David in my head. So as I'm creating the visuals, the movie that I'm seeing in my head is an animation of David's style. So you, so so not in the sense that I'm tailoring it to their strengths or their weaknesses. But once you get to know the artist, that's what you're seeing. So I guess I'm unconsciously tailoring it in some ways. 
Did that make sense? Uh, yeah. I actually, Absolutely. now that I, now that you say that, that you, which I find fascinating, you think of the style as you're writing it when you already know who you're working with, when you're comfortable with that. I wonder, like, do you ever, how, how often does it look different than what you imagined, I guess? <laughs> yeah, sometimes it does, you know, yeah, sometimes it does. And there's nothing you can do about it. And, and you know, the, the, sometimes what you run into, um, if you're working in the plot first style, you know, which they call Marvel style, but it's not really exclusive to Marvel, um, where you write a very, very detailed plot, goes out to the artist and you get the artwork back. And if it's, if it's you know, if it's a Sal Buscema or a Mike Zek or a David Baldion or whoever, uh, then you dialogue from that and it's like smooth sailing, man. You know, if any, they, they give you what you want or they give you more. Sometimes you get the art back and you're slapping yourself in the head because you can't, and I've had this happen in the past, literally turning the page around, trying to figure out what the hell's going on. And you have to tailor your writing to explain what's in the pictures, you know, which is why I, I, I always use this as my joke example. While, you know, the, uh, the bad guy's running across the roof and, and suddenly the dialogue is, oh, I tripped over the ledge and I'm falling because it's so not clear in the picture that he tripped over the ledge and he's falling. And so unfortunately you have to write some clunky thing in the narrative or the dialogue to explain what otherwise would be unexplainable in the art. But you know, the best artists will give you what you ask for and so much more. And I always use as the perfect example, Sal Buscema, uh, yeah. Spectacular Spider-Man 200, yeah. The Death of Harry. I, I, I mapped out that whole ending of that story, great detail, all the emotions, the psychology, everything that I wanted there. And I thought, this is the death of Harry. I am going to have to sell this story. I'm going to have to write the hell out of it and pour on the pour on the melodrama and the emotion. And, and I get Sal's art back. And every single thing that I asked for in that story was there on the page. And I started to write. And I went, what am I doing? These last three pages need nothing because it was all there. That's the beauty of working that way. Because when you're reacting to the artwork, but the truth is, even when you're writing full script and say on the demultiverse, two of the books I'm writing full script, two of the books I'm writing plot first, even when you're writing full script, give that to five different artists, you're going to get five different stories back because visual storytelling is a real specific thing. But artist A, you can describe that panel in such great detail, but the way he's going to draw it the emphasis will be different than the way artist B will emphasize it and artist C. So in a way, the storytelling is going to shift, which is why even with full script, sometimes when you get the art back and if you have the time, uh, you might want to go back in and add, add dialogue or add a caption here and there to clarify things. Because sometimes I've written full script and I think it's all really, really clear and I get the art back and I realize, oh, well, that's not really clear. I need to add something here to, to clarify that. Or the worst that happens is I, I never get to prove it before it goes out and the book goes out and I pick it up to read it and I go, I don't know what's going on here. So, but that, you know, those things happen rarely. Most of the people, 90% of the people I work with, if not 98% are real professionals and they know what they're doing and they know their jobs and they do great work. And like I say, most of the time what I get back is either what I expected or something better. Staying Fantastic. on the uh, subject of artists, like Spidey's had a lot of, defining artists between, you know, the Dick Dicko and the Ramitas and McFarlane and, and Mark Bagley. Um, who do you see from this current crop of, of talent as rising to the top with those people and having that same kind of impact on the character of Spider-Man? 
the reason I don't want to answer that is because I don't want to, by me singling out one person, I'm dissing yeah. 10 others. Do you know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It doesn't, I'm, I'm, I'm not comfortable doing that. So I'll that's, pass that's on that fair. question. Yeah. So uh, what is it about Harry? You, you, you've, he became, you know, he's been such a tragic figure under your pen with child within the death of Harry Osborne. What is it about that character that kind of draws you to that Shakespearean tragedy? You know, I think it's the whole family dynamic in the Osborne family. You know, when I started in comics, you know, after a couple of years, I kind of, I look back at some of these stories because sometimes themes develop and you don't even realize what you're writing about until you look back and all these stories about fathers and sons and parents and children. Cause you know, we're all in some way, shape or form trying to work out our stuff. Yeah. And, and, you know, the primal relationship in all of our lives is parents and children. And that's a dynamic that was interesting to write about a thousand years ago. And will be interesting to write about a thousand years from now. So with Harry and Norman and, you know, a lot of us grew up in, with, with struggle and dysfunction. And so I find a lot to relate to in Harry. My father was not Norman Osborn, but he, but he had his own, you know, Green Goblin mask that he wore, um, as, as, you know, as we all do to some degree, right? So I, I'm just fascinated by family dynamics and, and parent-child relationships and poor Harry, who was so damaged by it. You know, some of us get to go through things like that and we come out the other end stronger. Harry did and he didn't. You know, he got crippled by it for a long time. Um, he, he's dead again, right? Yeah, he's back. Okay, okay. <laughs> Depending on who you ask, he's either in heaven or hell again, <laughs> or, or both, right? or Europe, right? Because it turned out <laughs> <in Europe. laughs> or Europe, or <laughs> Europe. That's where Os what? that's where Osborns tend to go when they. Right, that's where Osborns go when they die. <laughs> yeah. May we all be so lucky, right? Right. Yeah. The Riviera is. Pretty heavenly, I would say. That's right. <laughs> well, if it's not a spoiler, who is the classic character you're most excited to uh, write in this series? You know, I, it, it's going to sound like a cop-out, but I love them all. I, any chance to go back and write Peter, I'm delighted. The Peter-Aunt May relationship, I'm delighted. Um, you know, the Norman... Seeing different sides of Norman, you know, Norman is fascinating to me because I love characters that are filled with duality. Norman mm -hmm. is not just one thing or another. He's not just a monster. He's also there's a good man in there somewhere. You know, it's twisted, but he's in there too. So to play with that and see both sides of who Norman is, and and Harry in the middle of that, and the story, we also bring in the Stacy family in the story. And I really oh. have very rarely had an opportunity to write Gwen. So it was fun to write Gwen and Captain Stacy is in there and Gwen's mother is in there. And uh, so that was fun because the, the, to always get some characters that I did, haven't had a chance to explore. It's only a four issue miniseries. So with all the other stuff I have to look at, the Stacys don't get as much breathing room as the rest of the characters, but they're in there and it's, and it's significant because Gwen at that point was Harry's closest friend. So there's, there's, there's that dynamic to explore as well. But I really, you know, when, when, you, when you're writing, you have to fall in love with every single character. You have to. In order to really tell that story, you have to love the heroes, you have to love the villains, and you have to love everyone in between to, to really, really tell that story well. So I really do love all those characters. I am wondering, um, when you're dealing with a, for, 
an arguably forgotten concept like this proto goblin thing yeah and you're and that it that it's part of this mini series i as i understand like how how liberating is it how daunting is it how challenging is it to kind of go back to this concept that only has one issue's worth of story and flesh it out and, and liberating is, is definitely definitely more liberate because you basically have a blank slate to do whatever right. you want with this character the character kind of came on the stage did his little thing got off the stage yeah. and we didn't really we didn't dig we didn't they didn't have time to dig deep you know it was just that right. one little glimpse into the past i saw him flashed on the screen for a second it's a metaphor uh, you know it's it's just sort of like what what i did in the in the ben riley series with spider side right you know yeah. spider side I have to be honest. I chose Spider Side because I always hated that character. <laughs> sure, I mean, a lot of people do, from what I understand. So I just—it was just one of those characters that just never clicked. I didn't never quite understood what the hell he was doing there. So I thought, here's a challenge. Let's take this character and make him into something—a three-dimensional villain. And I hope that that I at least came close with that. You, you did a beautiful job with oh, that. Thank I think. you, thank you. And uh, now, of course, we'll see all the. Spider Side miniseries coming your right. way, right? <laughs> well, he actually he just he has an appearance in Spine Tingling Spider Man. Really? And that that probably I maybe was influenced by his feature in Ben Riley. I don't know, but it's I would you know, guess couple, yeah, couple yeah. years couple years apart, and like that's a character that I think was basically left in the '90s Clone Saga. So how does how does it feel knowing you heralded the Renaissance of Spider Side? <laughs> <laughs> Probably my proudest achievement in my writing. Oh career. yeah, let's oh. go! <laughs> wow, clip that and, out. You know, anyway, same thing with this, with this proto goblin. You know, it's just it's a chance to kind of say, well, what can we do with this character? How? Yeah. Where has he been? What is he feeling? Does he have a family? You know, I mean, right. what does he want? What is he trying to get? How does he feel about Norman? What's happening here? And uh, so he he ties right into the the Osborne family saga very directly in this story. Yeah. I, I, I was going to ask a spider side question, but you already uh, <laughs> already answered. Because last time you were on the show, it was right before the reveal of spider side. Okay. I, yeah, and uh, you you told me off air. I was the only one that knew, and I the, everybody's like they saw my face, and I was they're like what? <laughs> so it was fun whenever we finally the week later it came out. They're like, oh, that's what you were, you know, given that uh, shocked look on my face. You know, so, it's always great to get those characters. Uh, it's like, you know, when Keith Giffen and I were doing uh, Justice League, you know, we got mm -hmm. they, we got dumped with a lot of, quote, second stringers. But there's no such thing as a second string character. Sure. Every character yeah. is a great character, potentially. Yeah. Uh, even yeah. when I when I wrote Defenders, when I started at Marvel, I, I, I filled the book with B-level or C-level characters because, first of all, no one else cares. Mm -hmm. The editor down yeah. the hall is not going to walk into your editor's uh, office and go, I don't like what you just did with Devil Slayer and Son of Satan because nobody cared. <laughs> yeah. So I could make those characters my own as Keith and I were able to make, you know, oh, you have uh, Green Flame and Ice Maiden. No, 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 you can't use them. Well, they're going to tell you that when it's Batman and Superman and Wonder Woman, but yeah. they're not going to say a word when it's Green Flame and Ice Maiden and you turn them into fire and ice. Right. I, uh, I guess Brown's, I, oh, sorry. Go, go ahead, Neil. No, go ahead. I guess bouncing off of that, you know, sales with comics are a bit different than they were back in the 80s and 90s. Um, do, do you see there being more of a 
page real estate, I guess is the right word, with these C or D, C or D list characters. Like if you have like Cardiac, um, do, do you think there's more value in like getting a six issue mini out of him than there would out of a 12 issue ongoing? I guess is a poor way of putting it. Well, it seems like the way they're doing things these days anyway, even when they tell you it's an ongoing book, it ends up being a miniseries because then they yeah. get to reboot it again. <laughs> you know? yeah, right, so yeah. it's hard to tell. I mean, again, my, my, my only point of view on that is that there's there are no bad characters. So, you know, any chance you get, especially now, even from a corporate point of view, if someone can take some obscure character that really never succeeded and turn it into something valuable, that's, you know, it makes for a good story and it's good for the company too. And that means that's potential, another potential movie does, you know? So, um, yeah, so that's how I feel about it. So You've given, Oh, go ahead. go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was just something that occurred to me, like they gave Peter David his own little niche of the spider verse where they're, he did like three mini series with the Spidey in the symbiote suit. And now he's going to do a 2099 version of that. Um, compared to your stories have been all throughout Spider-Man's history. Is there an era that hasn't been touched on yet that you'd like to tell a story in? That's a good question. I mean, I would love to do more with Ben, but I think because of what's happening with Ben and the current continuity, maybe they wouldn't go for that. The story that I really, really wanted to do was sort of, especially when I was done with the Ben Riley series, is sort of, uh, the, the, the Parker version of the Brothers Karamazov, a story with Peter and Ben and Kane and Spider-Side together and play all those personalities off each other because they're all brothers. You know, I would love to do that story. People want a book like that. I've seen that for years. People really want like a Spider-Brothers book. <laughs> yeah, I, I, mean... think, I, I think it would be great because they're, you know, they're, they're, there's something fundamentally the same in there, but they're all really different. And Kane, I haven't had a chance yeah. to write Kane in a long time. I loved, loved writing that character. Lost Years, one of my favorite things that I've ever done with Spider-Man. And, and a lot of that was because of Kane. Yeah, Redemption, Lost Years. And Redemption also, yeah. Yeah. Um, kind of kind of going off of that, um, you, kind of, you mentioned that, you know, doing Ben going back to Ben with different because he's chasm now have you ever had like a hankering to come and do the modern iterations of those characters like Kane as the Scarlet Spider and Ben as chasm and tackling how those characters are now versus when you uh had drew them in their hate when you wrote them in their yeah hair? yeah absolutely absolutely you know it's so funny because they, they get so into these 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 nostalgia miniseries and it's like guess what? I can write a story set in the current day. <laughs> I actually know how to do that. It's okay. You know? I've been doing this for 30. Yeah. 40 yeah. Years. So, so yeah, of course I would love to, I would love to do that. I, I don't mean in the sense of like taking a book away from anybody, mm -hmm. I just mean, yeah. you know, to play yeah. with these characters in the current continuity, it would be a challenge because that's, that would be new to me. That'd be something new to dig into and play with. Yeah. Yeah. Adam, you got another question? Off the top of my head, no. I'll just, I, I'll just say that. I'll just say that. I'll just say that since we talked about Spectacular 200 earlier, that's a masterpiece, as far as I'm concerned. Thank you, thank you. All <laughs> right, so let's do. Let, let me just do what I always do. Is like, why have not? Why haven't they reprinted that run? I don't. I you don't know, know. Yeah, I, we're, I was going to ask it, but I didn't want to know that was running over. I can go over to my but... shelf there and pull out a beautiful, <laughs> right. spectacular Spider-Man omnibus published yeah. in. Poland. Yeah. I have one from Italy. I, there's, I think they did one in South America. I think it was in Brazil. Yeah. I mean, I have a number of them. 
I wonder. I I've been thinking about this recently because I, don't I understand. I I skim through Child Within sometimes, and I and I wonder if it's the subject matter a little bit with particularly with uh vermin edward and his father because that gets kind of i know but they've done stories that have dealt with stuff sure yeah Yeah. right but i darker and more directly probably because we yeah i have to we you know i handled that story as gently as the wrong word but as tastefully as i possibly could you know it it was not in your face and probably a 10 year old reading that story didn't even know what that part of the story was even about yeah. You know, so I don't think that's it. I, I you know, considering what's out there in comics, yeah. mainstream comics now, I can't see that be the thing that's holding them back. Sure. No, I just, um, I would agree. It, it's one of those things, though, that I just, you know, you're looking for a reason, and I'm like, well, you right. know, there's, there's this, and you know, it's, it's Disney, and it's like, well, and even before, like, well, because they reprinted 189 and 200, and you know, like right after. Oh, like those facsimile editions, out. right? Yeah. Or... Yes. Well, they 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 did the Son of the Goblin trade, like I think right, shortly after right. the third movie, and that was one eighty nine and two hundred are in there. But it's right. just those, and it feels like honestly, it would have been a good opportunity to probably do the whole Child Within story at that time. And it's like, well, why didn't they go for it? Maybe it's because one eighty nine and two hundred are fairly self contained. They kind of like jump off each other. You know, you can do those back to back. But I don't know. I guess I just. I, I'm, I'm like, kind of hmm. joke. It's one of those. I joke privately. I, I joke privately that we have to arm wrestle uh, David Gabriel, who's in charge of the trades over at Marvel. Uh, I do. Yeah. What I what I have noticed though is that like they usually seem to wait for a lot of this stuff. Like they do it in the masterworks first, the yeah. Marvel masterworks. Like they want to like find as much of the art as they can, rescan it, recolor it. Well, you know, but oh, it's all been like, rescanned in Poland yeah, and Italy yeah, and that's here true. and there. You know, in fact, yeah, in Italy, I only found out uh, someone wrote to me and said that they have been reprinting all my Spider-Man stuff. I think either on a week, weekly or monthly basis, starting from the beginning, the whole everything, everything. You know, so I mean, so, sorry, it, that, 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 the look on my face is befuddlement because that doesn't make any. The children yearn for the J.M. DiMatteis Salvi Sema Omni. Yeah, I mean, it already exists. It's just in another language. So you know, I mean, what's I I I I don't get it. I I I'll make my own. (laughs) I see things of mine which I won't say what that get reprinted sometimes, and I go, why did they reprint that? And then you know, and then I see this sitting there, which you know, if it was just some obscure thing, I understand. You know, certain things of mine that haven't gotten reprinted because. They just didn't, even though I may love them, they didn't necessarily hit with the audience in any particular way. But this is a run that people are constantly talking yeah. to me about 25 years later. inspired a motion picture. You know, and, and yeah. what was, you know, the recent run where they even were reprinting pages from yeah, my yeah. run within the context of and the that stories. Been, and, you know, that would have been the perfect time to yeah, do it, it too. And I don't so, know why. Uh, uh, and All I, I know I is I'm, whenever they announce it, I'm probably going to have to just buy it right then because right. like who knows it's, it's one of those things that it is i mean they just re- and they did it with roger stern i mean they they did a roger stern omnibus mm-hmm. collecting all of his stuff with uh, peter parker spectacular spider-man and then and then when he jumped over to amazing right and people like you that have those type of runs it's yearning for that like there's a there's a for somebody i'm literally in the middle of a read through from chronological read through and I'm at actually 
literally at Craven's Last Hunt right now. Um, I just I just finished the month before, and so like I'm like, man, you know, this has been reprinted and it's gorgeous, and I've got you know the older trade, and it's great. But like, there is so much good stuff, you know, that you did with Sal, and as Sal is in his 90s now. You know, I would love to see that for him. Yes, I would too. That's a really, really good point. Let Sal have the pleasure of seeing that. You know, yeah. even even you know, even if you did a volume with Craven's Last Hunt, Soul of the Hunter, and The Child Within, because they're all there's a continuity right. there between all those stories. Yeah. Yeah. That would be pretty cool too. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 an iconic story, and I, you know, um, it's just I would love to be shake the guys at Marvel and like this is a printing of money people will want this <laughs> it's gonna it'll, i know i know i know but you know what let's let, uh, wait, let's not hammer this into the ground um yeah that's true <laughs> i know, I, know. Yeah, so, um I, I had kind of wanted to ask the question of like you know you you're, most of your work since ben Riley has been untold tales at marvel and you'd already kind of answered the question of whether or not you'd like to tack on those same characters in the modern day so i'm not gonna run back to that but i just wanted to say thanks for answering that question while we were on that subject <laughs> now i uh, the, I, I do want to ask about the um, the lost hunt because we didn't get a chance to talk to you. About okay, that. sure. Um, what when when that came about? I mean, that's a very very short window of an era of of Peter. Uh, tell yeah. me about how you know was that Danny that kind of pitched that well, idea? Once again, yeah, once again, we were like talking. Well, what are we going to do next? You know, and I had a bunch of ideas, and then the word came down from up above, probably because at that point the Craven. The Hunter movie was supposed to be coming out fairly fairly soon. Well, yeah. we need something Craven related, and I have to be honest. My first response was, oh, "You know, <laughs> really? Do we we we're gonna do, we're gonna go to that well again?" Except, I had had this other character in the back of my head for a while, because I'd always had that question of, "How did this Russian?" immigrant Sergei Kravinov become Craven the Hunter. What was that leap from, from Russia to New York to the jungles of Africa? So I'd been developing this character in my head and I realized, oh, I can, I can, I can tell the story about her, first of all, which will al also open up uh, Craven's backstory in a way that we've never had it done before. And then the idea came about, well, this is what Ben was doing during the Ben Riley miniseries. What was Peter doing? And I wasn't that up on that period of time either. I didn't pay that close attention to it. And as soon as I saw it's Peter without powers, well, this is fascinating. Take away his powers. And then you ask the question, well, who is Spider-Man really? What makes a hero? And, you know, anybody that's ever written Spider-Man will tell you there is no Spider-Man. It's always Peter Parker. And so powers, no powers, mask, no mask. What that story became about is, you know, Peter Parker is the hero. And then you have a pregnant Mary Jane. And I love that relationship and I love their marriage. And um, so it was a chance to see what was going on with them, to fill in the gaps in Craven's backstory uh, and then use Gregor, you know, as, as a window into a lot of that. And again, deepen and expand Gregor's character. And then to introduce the character of Asia Orisha, who I fell in love with, and I would love to write that character again, who, uh, which is, I guess it's not a, not giving anything away now. It turns out she was Gregor's mother and also the person who trained Craven and turned him into Craven the Hunter. Well, actually, that was not her goal. His madness turned him into Craven the Hunter. She was trying right. to, to, to help him and educate him about certain things, and he went off the deep end. So that's where that story came about. Well, I, I 
I loved it. It was great. I, I, I really enjoyed it because I was like, as somebody that started reading during the Clone Saga, to get to, get to that point where he's powerless and get an expanded story, I, I was kind of shocked that we had a pregnant Mary Jane, to be honest, because considering the, you know, it, right. was she ever pregnant? Was she not? You know, uh, question. Right. Yeah, I know. The fact that, you know, people were like, I mean, they're married. They're really married. You can say that they're married. <laughs> yeah. But they, no one said, don't say that. And in my mind, they were married. And, you know, even if you, you know, even the, even if the Mephisto thing changed something from a certain point forward, say, doesn't mean that what happened before that didn't happen. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Exactly. So that's the way I look at it anyway. Well, okay. I, I, I appreciated that because it was like, okay, you know, we, we again, growing up and, and starting a ring of that. And, and speaking of that, area of time after the clone saga when um what was it about the chameleon that wh what was it about that character that you you just loved getting into the to his psyche because it it felt like that your your run then in the second half of uh spectacular after you came back you, you covered a lot of dimitri and, and that and that character and tell me a little bit about you know how that came about yeah you just you, you know recall you just sort of tumble into these characters in a way. I had done a story, you know, I was the one that established that actually, well, we named him Dimitri and established that he and Craven were basically half brothers. That had never mm -hmm. been established before. We knew they had some kind of connection. And again, it's my Dostoevsky brothers Karamazov thing at work there. You know, Dimitri was one of the brothers Karamazov actually. That's where his name came from. Oh, okay. um, so um, I, I loved that connection between the two of them. Again, it's it's in a different way. It's like Norman and Harry. It's this horrible, dysfunctional big brother, little brother. You know, he's he's the half, the half brother, he's the bastard brother. And you know, Craven has always abused him yet. He worships Craven and wants to be Craven. And and then so who is the guy? What what is the psychology behind a guy who constantly wants to change his face? Clearly, this is a guy who's not comfortable being himself. Uh, if this is his modus operandi, you know. So he was just one of the one of those characters. You know, you don't know sometimes. As a reader, I never read a chameleon story and went, I love the chameleon. The same thing about Craven. Didn't happen until I wrote those characters. And sometimes you fall in love with a character when you write them. Sometimes the character that you love, you write them, you still love them, but you don't feel like there's anything new that you have to add to that character, even though it's one of your favorite characters. Uh, and then you have some really obscure character or some character that, that never connected with you when you sit down to write them and something clicks. Same thing with Aunt May. It was like, to me as a reader, Aunt May was like, oh, Aunt May, you know? And then I started to write Aunt May and I, I was like, oh, I understand who something happens and you suddenly you go, I understand who this person is. And then you dig deeper and then you dig deeper and then they become... You know, I not romantically, but I fell in love with Aunt May. <laughs> Nothing went on between us that was untoward, <laughs> um, but I did fall in love with Aunt May because she's a much deeper, stronger character. You know, she's not just that neurotic old lady who's always exactly. having a heart attack. She's yeah. a really powerful woman. Yep. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I, I've as I've been doing my read through, and I'm and I'm reading all those old. Marvel team ups and spectaculars and web ofs. It's I'm like okay, I can appreciate Aunt May a lot more when you go back. See Zach, <laughs> see I'm I, telling. I've always been an anti Aunt May guy, so <laughs> I, it's like you know, I was because like one of my favorite books was the was the gift that you wrote, mm -hmm. the death of Aunt May, and you and Bagley did on ASM right. 400. Yes, yeah, and, 
and that's one of my favorite issues and it's a beautifully done issue it really I'm mad at Bob Harris for bringing her back. I mean, honestly, but you know, uh, every, everybody comes back, you know, this is a double-edged sword. When you're writing the death of a character, just what I was saying before, you know, but having to really believe in them all, uh, you have to believe that the death is real. If in the back of your head, you're thinking they're going to bring him or her back, right. it's going to kill the reality of the story. Yeah. Uh, the problem with Aunt May was they brought her back so fast. Right. You know, Harry was dead for 20 years or something. Craven was dead for 20 or 25 years before they brought him back. Um, it's comics. That's okay. You know, I've sure. done it. We all do it. But Aunt May came back really, really quickly. Um, and I think that the, the quickness of it sort of undercut that death of Aunt May story a little bit. You know, yeah, but the story is still out there. You can pick it up. You can read it. And, in my, you know, and, and, uh, and what are you going to do? That's comics. You know, yeah, those those are available digitally. All the ASM issues are out there. It's just not the the, the, yeah. the ancillary it's titles, which so interesting. Yeah, they, well, they had ASM. to get they had to get ASM out there because it's Marvel's biggest title. Yeah, priority. I mean, they did it with Fantastic Four too. They did it with a good chunk of the X Men. You know, that part I understood because there was those DVDs that they were selling that you could put the DVD in and be able to read those comics digitally. And so I understand that, and they were able to pull those off and easily do it. But I wish they would have done it for like Web of and Spectacular as well. Right, right. Um, Javi, you had another question about uh, Craven. Yeah, um, just kind of embarrassing myself here. I I got this when I was ten on a rainy night. My dad took me to the thrift store to get some ice cream, and I that was my first introduction to you, and it was part three. I wasn't confused. I was just fascinated, and you I weren't was confused. So that's good. And were was yeah. were you traumatized in any way, shape, or form? <laughs> no, it was it, my my dad um, raised me on Marvel Tales because that's what he read. So mm -hmm. this was like the rare period or the rare time in my childhood where I got like a current issue, uh -huh. and I was just I was just blown away by everything. And I felt like comics kind of grew up with me. Um as I got older, like the, the stories matured as I, as I got older. So I have like all the original issues Then I got a trade Then I got a hardcover that Mike Zek signed. Then I got another hardcover because it has uh, Craven's first ton and it has, oh, that, yeah, they did Hunter a great job with that one. Yeah. And, yeah. and all this, and now you've done even more stories in it and people have done their own uh, versions of last hunt. Like, how do you feel? about this story being like a franchise are you blown away by it are you tired of it are no, you happy not, that I, it's still I, out I'm there not, i'm not tired of it despite what i said you know when they said craven for me to have to you know go back to that well i had to really find my way in but in terms of the life of that story you hope for that you know you don't when believe me when we were doing that story no one's thinking 30 years from now people will be reading this story you know, no one thinks that you know where it's done on to the next story when you're done so the fact that certain stories live on and keep getting reprinted and, you know, people say to me, I just read this for the first time last week. 
Mm-hmm. And that's what you want, that your story is being rediscovered 30 years later. That's, you know, who could ask for anything more? So, no, I, I, I'm delighted. I'm delighted that it lives on in the way that it does. Yeah, it's great. Plus, they keep reprinting it, which means they keep paying me. So that's good. Too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the, the, la- the last Hunt Industrial Complex keeps on churning. I love all the of all the like the spinoffs and sequels that you were involved with for that story. Which one yeah. meant the most to you? Since you just did another one last year, oh, that's that's interesting. You know, well, I consider kind of Craven's Last Hunt and Soul of the Hunter is sort of just like the afterward in a way. Mm-hmm. You know, so they're almost the same, the same body thing. of work. Yeah, you know, in a lot of ways, I really do like Lost Hunt, the one that we just did, because I think it 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 took a deep dive into a corner of that that mythos where we hadn't been before. You know, it was fun to go back and do that annual with Craven's first hunt, take that Lee Ditko story and tell it from the perspective of what we knew later yeah. about Craven. So that was fun. But but Lost Hunt, yeah, Lost Hunt was well, I enjoyed I enjoyed that a lot. And maybe there are some others that I've forgotten because, I, I, you know, I've been I have I have been back there a couple of times. <laughs> but each time you want to do something fresh with it, you know, and sometimes mm-hmm. you hit it and sometimes you don't. I mean, even in your second run, you brought in Ali Asha. Right. Um, Craven, right. which was, you know, his second son after Grim Hunter was sacrificed right, yeah. at the altar of Cain. I mean, <laughs> what do you guys next for? Um, so, okay. Um, I, I, you, you mentioned writing about animation earlier and I, yeah. I want to follow up on that. Is it a different approach on animation versus, um, comics or is there is there similarities there you know well as with every question that one could possibly ask there are two answers to that and they're contradictory so on the one hand story is story is story whether you're telling that story you know i i i i've been back to prose writing recently i have two books that came out in the past couple of years one called the excavator one called the witness you can get them on amazon um uh but whether you're doing prose you're doing uh, uh, live action TV, you're doing animation, you're doing comics. The essence of a great story is the same. How you tell that story, the form through which that story is filtered is different and you have to learn that form. Writing a story in a screenplay form, it's, it's just not this, you're not telling it the same way you can in a comic book. The beauty of a comic book is it's sort of a fusion of all these different forms. It's visual, but it's literary. It's the novel. It's yeah. it's a movie. It's it's you yeah. know, and it's its own unique thing. Um, and the other thing in terms of writing animation, especially if you're writing for a television show, is that it's not your vision. I'm a freelancer. I'm being hired to write an episode or five episodes of a specific show that they have a season worked out and specific stories that they want to tell. Uh, the thing I'm working on right now, which I can't say what it is, but uh, I can't say what it is. <laughs> I, I almost slipped. And I don't want to, but there you know, you they had they, they you know this is it's a series, and they have this specific, and they said this is the story that we want you to tell. So my job is to take the but they give me the bones, you know. My job is to a give them what they want because that's really important. But then I have to bring something of me, something fresh and original to that story. Because if all I'm doing is regurgitating notes that they gave me, then they could do that with anybody. You have to bring something fresh. You have to take what they've given you and expand it and deepen it and make it unique to you. So it's it's a it's a fine balance with the TV stuff because it's not my vision. 
I have to always say I have to take off my, when, you know, comics, however commercial they get, there's so much room to tell, a, even with Spider-Man, Batman, to tell a deeply personal story that's unique to you. If I'm yep. working on somebody else's TV show, I have to take off that personal vision hat and yeah. remember that I'm now part of a team. Mm-hmm. And luckily, you know, the, all the stuff I've worked on over the years, 90% of it, uh, 99% has been with Warner Brothers, with, you know, the Bruce Timms and Jim Kriegs and Alan Burnett's and Stan Berkowitz and all these great guys, Dwayne McDuffie, who are not like executives, they're writers, great story people. So to get on the phone with these guys for an hour and a half and start batting a story around, who could ask for anything more? And then, like I said, my job is to go off and put that together and and then it has to become personal again in the end. I have to make it personal because I have to care that deeply about it, even though it's even though it's serving a greater vision than just my own vision of the story. I have to make it personal and do the very best I can with that. And it's fun. And hats off for adapting uh, for the man who has everything for Justice League to take that Alan Moore Superman annual and condense it into a 20 minute story that fit the tone of that show i mean that's just i applaud you sir that 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 was was the first that was the first one they handed me that was the first justice league episode that i did and i always say well here's the thing i had never read it before i didn't know that it was this like you know this story that was so revered they sent it to me i read it oh that's a really cool story okay let's get to work (laughs) i think if i had known the way people revered that story, I would have been really intimidated, might have frozen up there. Same thing when I, when I did Red Sun. I did an adaptation of uh, Mark Miller's Superman Red Sun as a as an animated movie. Um, I didn't know that it was this sort of like up there on Mount Olympus of, of, of Elseworlds stories. Um, I just thought it was a cool story. I read it. They sent it to me. I read it and thought it was a cool story. And we, you know, it was it was an interesting one, a hard one to adapt because there's so much in that story. A red yeah. sun mm-hmm. is just sprawling and filled with these wonderful concepts and ideas. And to trim that down to a 90 minute, you know, animated movie was a challenge, but I, I think it worked out and a uh, Mark seems to have liked it. Yeah. So if you please the guy who created the story, I think that's a good thing. Definitely. <laughs> so uh, this is probably going to be my last question. Okay. Um, I know that DC and Marvel recently announced that they're bringing back oh. the uh, crossovers. Yeah. And I, and I, I'm, if I'm correct, that includes uh, Spider-Man, Batman, Disordered Minds, and uh, New yep. Age Dawning. Right, both of them. Yeah. I, I misread it when they first announced it, and I thought they were only reprinting one of them. And then someone said, no, they're both in there. And I looked, and that's that's great. I'm happy to see it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. That, I just wanted to kind of get your thoughts on that. because I know. Yeah, that's like I'm, I'm delighted. Deal. Yeah. And it hopefully it opens the door for them doing doing more of these now, new ones, which would I, be I, great. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's a good point. I'm sorry. I had said that uh, when we covered DC versus Marvel, I was like, this isn't something that will never happen again. Just with the way, you know, the two corporate behemoths now yeah. with Warner Brothers and Disney. And so it's like, I, I just don't see this. But then, you know, this coming out of the blue, I, I was... I was shocked. So I'm and glad. The, yeah, the response that I'm seeing from fans to this is like huge. Just people are so excited yeah. about this. And, uh, you know, it's a point of pride for me, which, again, when you're doing these things, you don't you don't think about it. Oh, you want to do a Batman Spider-Man crossover? Yeah, okay, I'll do it for Marvel. A year and a half later to DC calls. Do so you want to do a Batman Spider-Man crossover? Yeah, okay. You know, 25 years later, I realized I'm the only guy I think that's ever done that. Yeah. You know, and I did it for both companies. And it really, I'm so dense. It took me like 20 something years to realize, oh, that's really cool. <laughs> you know? at, the t- at the time, it was just another gig. It was a great gig. Don't get me wrong. Like, you know, who wouldn't love to team those characters up? 
but right. it was just another gig. And now it's like, wow, that was really cool that I got to do that. And and, yeah, and I wanted to ask you. Oh, no, go ahead, Neil. And, and sorry, Javi, I didn't mean to stop you. Um, my follow up to that kind of is, um, do you think that if this sells well, it'll lead to, I guess, further creations of DC and Marvel crossing over? And would you be interested in doing more work like that in the future? Oh, I would love to do it, but but beyond my wanting to do it, whether I am ever involved in it again, I hope they do it because it's just so much fun. Yeah, it's just yeah. so much fun, you know. And it's it's every nerd's dream, right? <laughs> to team these characters up like that—it's fantastic. It's 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 you know, it really is essence of nerddom, you know. Spider-Man and Batman, Captain America and Superman, whatever you know, pick your two and throw them together and have some fun. It's great. It, it, it always felt like back in the day, because of the relationship with Mark Grinwald and Mike Carlin, they were such good friends Yeah, that it was so easy for them to get together and do those things. And hopefully now with James Gunn and, and uh, Kevin Feige at the highest levels on their perspective sides, maybe that's helping, you know, uh, have a well, similar. I don't, that, I don't think they have anything to do with the publishing, though, either of those guys. You know, that's 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 this is a decision that was made by publishing, you know, not. By, yeah. But credit where credit's due, James Gunn, the interactions I've had with him and what I see of the way he presents himself on social media, the DC stuff is in really, really good hands. I agree. I, I have True. to say I was I was shocked and delighted when they announced the Creature Commandos <laughs> thing because that's something I created about five minutes into my career in the business, you know, 150 <laughs> years ago. And to see that be the basis of this TV thing was amazing. And he very kindly took time out and we got on zoom and we chatted and had a great talk about it. Um, and he's a real fan. You yeah. see him on social media, just, Oh, I just read this comic. It's great. You know, right. it's like, he's, yeah. he's just loves this stuff. So I think, I think the DC universe is in really good hands with him. And then, I just uh, wanted to dovetail off of what Neil was asking with Batman and, and Spider-Man. Uh, what were the challenges for you back then writing those two characters coming together with different creative teams and different publishers and having to figure out a story that would incorporate villains for both sides? Because it, when it came out for me, like it was really seamless the way Joker and Carnage played off each other. And then later you had Kingpin and Rachel Ghoul. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that from what you remember? Well, what I remember with the Spider-Man Batman, you know, Bagley and I were working together on Amazing at that point, I'm pretty sure, when we did that. So we already had those muscles, you know, we'd already worked those muscles as a team. So we were we were locked there. Uh, what I do remember is that they told me which villains to use. I didn't get to choose the villains. Okay. And honestly, left to my own devices, I never would have chosen Carnage because it was never a character that I really particularly cared for. So the challenge was, you know, the way I approach a story is always going to be, well, here's here's Peter Parker, here's Bruce Wayne. Again, not Batman and Spider-Man. Here's Peter Parker, here's Bruce Wayne. What about them is similar? What about them is different? How can we contrast them? And how what can we what can we put them through to bring these things out of them? And so now I've got Joker and Carnage, who on the surface seem pretty similar, a couple of homicidal maniacs, but they're really different in their approach to their uh, to their homicides, <laughs> you know, um, they're very different. Uh, you know, Joker, uh, Carnage is just like kill, kill, kill. And the Joker is an artist. He's theatrical. Uh, you know, he's in it for the, for the, for the performance, you know, um, and they ultimately didn't get along all that well. Right. So that was interesting. So, you know, once, 
see for me once you get into the characters heads the challenge is finding finding those corners those pockets of their psyches mm -hmm. that excite me because that the inner stuff is going to lead you and the plot will form around that you know it, it, yeah. sometimes you have come up with a great oh this is such a cool plot idea story idea and then that leads you but even then if you don't have wonderful characters carrying you along with that story it's not going to work because then it's just a plot machine but but ideally you know for me it's like let's get into the characters heads let's see what journey we can take them on and the plot will form itself around that and that's what happened with that one and the other one you know, I don't remember whether they told me the villains or I picked the villains. That I don't remember. Um, but it was the same thing. Plus, uh, writing-wise, it was in continuity with the previous team-up, you know? So it kind of became its own little yeah. specific universe. We, I didn't have to introduce them again and go, you know, show how they met. They knew each other. They'd had this other adventure. So I got to pick the two of them up where they left off. And the same with thing the with, with... Yeah, exactly. And then, yeah. you know, with, with Rachel Ghoul and, and the Kingpin, guys that are very similar in some ways and yet really, really different in other ways. So how can we contrast and compare? Um, and then, of course, you know, for me, the key, the key with the Kingpin has always has been his relationship with his wife, which was really important to that story. So you're always looking for those emotional and psychological hooks. And in both cases, I had great artists. It was Graham Nolan did the, the DC one. I yeah. Think. Yeah. Was, did a great mm -hmm. job. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it was, it was great. But like I said, it took me 20 years to go, wow, that was cool. I got to do that. <laughs> so, um, if nobody else has any other questions, we were going to let you plug away. I have, I have one that's just random. Okay. Um, so I know you're a musician. Are yes. you still writing, playing music at all? Yeah, I'm not playing publicly or anything, right. but I still play. I still write songs. I still sing. I do all that stuff. I, you know, over especially the first couple of years of the pandemic, I, I had stockpiled so many songs. So I I spent a lot of time just demoing a whole bunch of songs. You know, That's and awesome. uh, my hope is I keep saying this, and it hasn't happened yet. Better happen before I get too old to get back in the studio and record a bunch of them. You know. Um, yeah. So yeah, that music is very, very important to me and always has been, always will be. And in many ways, I always say once a musician, that, that's like the, it's the fundamental part of my creativity. Even my writing comes from my musical self in a way. You know, writing, right. writing stories is a very musical uh, practice in a lot of ways. At least I see it that way. So there's, a, there's, there's flow and there's poetry, there's melody and counter melody there's a beat there's a rhythm there's all those things are in a story that are in a piece of music so i i i realized some years ago oh yeah i approach it i approach writing stories the same way that i approach writing music you know and, and writing songs it's, it's, the, it's the other way around a song is a story you have to do it in three four minutes but you're telling a story there as well you know you're you're whether it's a psychological journey or an emotional journey or or you're just screaming for three minutes even when you're screaming it's an emotional journey right um so yeah oh thanks for asking that yeah so yeah i'm yeah, still no, at it still at it yeah no problem good to hear thanks yeah. well we are so grateful for you to oh, so I, oh wait, i'm gonna gotta do my plugs that's what we're gonna yes. do right okay yes, that's what let, that's let what him I, let him show his wares <laughs> that's right it's good uh, stuff so i i didn't mention but i'll mention again these two uh these two books that came out uh the excavator uh, uh, published by a wonderful company called Neotex. And what they do also is that each each book has uh, 10 illustrations and a cover by by a, a wonderful artist. The first one is by uh, a Greek artist named Vasilis Godzilis, who 
for the De Multiverse, he did the Edward Gloom Mysteries with me. Beautiful job. The second one called The Witness has 10 illustrations and a cover by J.H. Williams III, if you know his work, one of the best artists working in the business right yes. now. They're both sort of in the, I guess I'd call them supernatural thrillers in that nice. classic Twilight Zone sense, an ordinary person, extraordinary circumstances, and how do they yeah. deal with it? And two stories that I'm really, really proud of. So I have to plug those. Working on a third novella now that hopefully will be out maybe by the end of the year. Um, the Multiverse Phase 2 is coming, hopefully in the spring, early summer at the latest. We have the second chapters of all the books. Uh, announcements about the Kickstarter, when that's going to launch, will be coming. So that's that's a lot because that's, you know, five different books that, that we're going to be seeing the second the second chapters of. I have the Spider-Man project, of course. I have uh, a project uh, uh, over at DC, but I can't tell you what it is. <laughs> but it's really fun. That's all I can say. And it probably won't be announced for four or five months or something yet. But it's uh, one I'm very excited about. And then I'm working on this animation project right now, too, which is which I would love to tell you about. But I signed an NDA, so I can't tell you about it. <laughs> they're both they're both uh, they're Spider-Man and Batman part three and four. That's right. That's right. It's it's that would be really cool to do it as an animated movie, wouldn't it? Oh take yeah. Those, one of those stories and do that in this yeah. animated movie. Un un unfortunately, the lawyers are more powerful than us. So. Yeah, yeah. I think I think people would be having strokes at Marvel and DC. The lawyers yeah. trying to figure out how to make that one work. Although, if they could make it work with the comics, why couldn't you make it work for one animated movie? That's true. Do a, do a crisis of two worlds and have the Marvel right adapt right. Marvel versus DC, whatever you know. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. interesting. The spectacular, brave, and the bold. There so, yeah, yes. so anyway, so I'm really, really yeah. busy. I'm always happier when I'm this busy, and uh, and life's good. Well, we will good. put in links uh, in the description below. Uh, once again, thank you again for coming on the show. It, it's always a joy. I feel like we're just sitting back and we're getting a master class every time we talk to oh, you. Yeah. And it, it's always just so so gratifying. So thank you. Well, you, you. Wait, you haven't taken the test yet. <laughs> so. Oh, no. Oh, no. I'm going to fail. It'll be multiple choice. So that'll okay, be okay. Yeah, and and I'm going to grade on a curve. Okay, so, I well, at least get a 25%. Okay, that's good. <laughs> so, again, yeah, thank it, you so really much. It's really good to talk to you guys. Uh, uh, I love your enthusiasm for Spider-Man and his world and for the work. I appreciate it. Thank well, you. we, we appreciate you. So, yeah, yeah. we'll uh, get get the uh, working on the outro here. So, thank you guys for watching. If you uh, are watching us live on YouTube, if you are listening to us on the audio edition, which comes out the same time as this, uh, thank you again. We want to shout out our patrons over at patreon.com slash Network. Our patrons like Allison, Cindy, Ed, Georgia, Greg, Janelle, Jessica, Jurgen, Catherine, Kale, Laura Howard, Lump Moose, Master Dramon, Phoenician, Scott, Vanessa, Vicky, and Winnipeg Webhead. Thank you. As well to our spectacular patrons, Sarah, our friendly neighborhood here that you see up on our screen, and then, of course, our VIP, Scott, Sebastian, and Bankman. Thank you guys again for your support. If you have not checked out our, our other fine shows like Books of X, and uh, a Spider Dude experience, the ultimate Spider Dude experience as well. Voices from the Eerie, the show that Hobby hosts, Amazing Spider Man classics going back from the beginning with the father and son duo. Uh, our slot symposium where we talk about Dan Slot's run. Uh, Clone Saga Chronicles, which talks a lot about our subject of today's episode, JMD Mateus and his work on the Clone Saga, Spectacular Radio. And I want to shout out the, Spe the Sabi Cinema Spectacular podcast where they're going to be talking a lot about. Uh, child within so that'll be coming out later on this year so we're really excited about it check out our social medias you see them on the screen at spidey radio on twitter 
Facebook uh, and Instagram at Spidey Dude Network. And then, of course, here on YouTube at Spidey Dude Radio Network. Thanks again. If you want to have your voice on the show, you can always leave us a voicemail, 818-925-6631. Leave us that five-star review if you're listening to us on the audio edition. And if you're watching us on the video edition, give us that like, that share, and that subscribe. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time here on the Spidey Dude Radio Network.